It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. If you download the app and search for ELMNTFM 106.5 or 95.7, you can take us with you anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show my guest, Rosary Spence, and she is the Indigenous Learner Support Program Coordinator in the Office of Indigenous Health for Temetry Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Whew, that's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> it's a mouthful. <laughs> Rosary, welcome to the show. I know you're here to uh, talk to us about a program that's running in August, and I'm going to let you pronounce the the name that the elders came up with in the traditional language, but it is in call in English. It is translated to Building the Fire, Walking with Medicine. Yes, it's Zakan Nebmudwin Kichikanumadwinan. Thank you. And you yeah. see, that's why, it's exactly why I didn't want to attempt it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a long word. Um, as you know, our Indigenous languages, they're never literal translations. Mm-hmm. They're, um, you know, uh, words that have a lot of meaning and bigger meanings than the actual English translations. This name came uh, from the elders. Can you tell me a little bit of the backstory about why they came up with this this name, Building the Fire, Walking with Medicine, uh, as it's translated into English? Sure. Um, so traditionally in our culture, we go to our elders for advice for pretty much everything that we want to do, especially if we want to do things in a good way. Mm. So we offer tobacco to our advising elder um, council that we have at the Women's College Hospital. And um, we've asked them to name our group, our new program, so that we can do things in a good way and so that we can present um, the program in a good way for the youth. Right. So the elders went into ceremony, and in ceremony, they were shown images of youth building a fire and walking with traditional medicines, learning about traditional medicines and putting um, traditional and Western uh, health sciences together. So the idea came that, you know, our youth are our future. And when we think about what a fire represents, you know, the fire represents taking care of the home. It represents warming your home and cooking your food and nourishing your families. And there's a lot more. There's a bigger teaching and behind what a fire represents within our culture. So the idea that the youth are now the next generation coming up to take care of that fire, that's kind of where that came from for the elders. And then again, with the medicine, you know, walking with medicine, walking in a good way mm. and carrying on teachings that they're going to potentially be taking from this program later on into their lives. Right. Now, if people want to uh, go to the website, indigenousyouthapplication.com, uh, if people go yes. there, they can actually scroll through the different pages about the information, about the program, and about the application process. Now, I know we, you said the, the course runs from August 3rd to the 13th, I believe? Yes. Uh, so basically, we'll be meeting with our youth uh, virtually through Google Classroom, okay. uh, basically the same way that they've been meeting their teachers through the remainder of their school year this past year. Mm-hmm. And um, through this program, the good thing about it is that 
our educators where we were able to find healthcare professionals from across the country to facilitate these um, workshops, we can call them, mm. uh, for the youth and yes. presentations for the youth. So they don't necessarily have to be here in person. So, And I think that's the good thing about the virtual world that we are currently finding ourselves in is that we can partake in all kinds of different classes and workshops from virtually anywhere. <laughs> so Very true. Yeah. It's a bit of a blessing in disguise, I guess. It is, isn't it? And and that's something that's come up more than once uh, in, in some of the conversations I've been having as well. Now, uh, eligibility is that uh, a student has to be in grade 9 or 10 by the fall of 2021, identify mm-hmm. as Indigenous, and have an interest in health services. Now, the applications have been out for a while. So is, is in fact, the course full at this point in time? So we do have a few spots open. Okay. Um, the applications actually um, are still available online. If you go to our website, indigenousyouthapplication.com, mm-hmm. and click on the header that says application, yep. there you'll find a fillable form. Yep. Uh, we do request that the youth right now uh, be within the GTA area. Okay. We were, we were getting a lot of... Um, applications from people out of province as mm-hmm. far as BC yep. all the way to the east coast right. and unfortunately right now we're, we're just not able to provide um, because with yeah. the type of grant that we received for yes. to deliver this program yes. we really need the youth to be within the GTA. So sometimes you can go and audit a program you don't have to be part of it but you can actually go in and sit you're not going to be uh, part of the you know you're not going to be graded but you can go and listen and watch uh, just as, as a, a point of interest. Is is that something that might be open for people outside of the, the GTA area? Um, unfortunately, not this time around, mm. only because this is a new program. Right. And the idea behind the whole program is that we're creating a culturally safe mm. and trauma-informed type okay. programming so that the youth are aware who's going to be in the program prior mm-hmm. to actually being in it. Ah. We're going to have a virtual social where the parents and the youth will come together, get to know each other a little bit before the program actually starts. And we, and because, you know, we are dealing with youth, we want to make sure that the youth feel safe and that they can express themselves um, in front of their peers that they've mm. already prior met. So if we're having a stranger come in and sit and audit the program, yeah. um, that's not very culturally safe. Right. Understood. Thank you for mm-hmm. explaining yeah. that. And I'm glad we, we I'm yeah. glad we actually mentioned that because that helps to also explain why that won't be happening. Now, exactly. you, you mentioned the program and the description and I see that you're using the medicine wheel and the four quadrants uh, and people can go there so they can actually get a sense of of how this course is is laid out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah if you go on our website we really wanted to when we were developing it actually we really wanted to focus around the medicine wheel um, I think you know the majority of people may know what it is but if mm-hmm. they don't know it's actually an, uh, a very powerful teaching tool that we use within our culture to talk about balance and what mm-hmm. that means in our life when it comes to mental health, emotional health, physical health, and spiritual health. And what, what does that represent? Especially when it comes to health sciences, you know, it's so important to be able to develop a plan of care for your patients mm. um, with all elements of their body right. uh, and not just physical, right? So right. that's kind of where that comes from, from a holistic approach. You pointed out about that information session that the students and parents are going to have. Uh, That's taking place on July 30th. Is that still going ahead on that same date? Yep. Yeah, everything is is going according to 
plan. We have been working on this for quite some time. Mm. Uh, the planning stages of this actually started uh, last year. Mm. Um, the website was implemented uh, early April. Mm-hmm. Everything has been uh, going according to plan, and we're so excited. Now we're finally coming to the official uh, program. We're excited for the youth, and we're excited for the presenters as well. Mm-hmm. Again, when are you planning to close the uh, the application deadline? Uh, so, like I said, we've we've been getting a lot of uh, requests from yeah. uh, different applicants from all across the country, but yeah. we're focusing within the GTA. Yep. And why we're focusing within the GTA is simply just for you know granting purposes, but also because we really want youth, Indigenous youth. Mm-hmm. The city of Toronto alone has a huge Indigenous population. Yeah. And so we're wanting to reach out to the youth specifically, um, just so that they know that you know they this this option is here. You can go to medical school; it is an option. So this is like a safe place for them just to create that conversation, mm-hmm. get it started. This is what medical school looks like. You know, some of our presenters are uh, will be current med- Indigenous medical students in their second and third mm-hmm. years. Great. You know, so they can talk about their journey and how yeah. they got there. That's great. And. Um, so with that in mind, um, we're really encouraging Indigenous youth within the GTA in grades 9 and 10 to reach out, send us, a, send us an email, mm. fill out the application, mm-hmm. and not to be intimidated by the program itself because this is going to be a very um, culturally safe program. We're really focusing on traditional health practices. And um, yeah, so we're, this is what... Uh, we're delivering. And again, you know, uh, I encourage people to go to the indigenousyouthapplication.com website because if you go down to the program page, uh, you scroll down, you will see the medicine wheel. And that, and as I mentioned, that breaks down. But if you continue to scroll down, you'll see the daily themes that are going to be discussed. And then there's, uh, there's some bullet points on the side that will really give you some more information about the kind of things that you guys are going to be touching on. And so it will really help to uh, alleviate some of that concern that you were just talking about and uh, and it really gives people more of, a, of an idea uh, of what they can expect and what they might be exposed to I think this is wonderful the fact that you said some of the other uh, 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 people that are going to be teaching are, are kids, students that are in their second or third year you know mm-hmm. in the field because uh, what a wonderful way for these uh, these potential applicants that might be interested in pursuing this line of work for them to uh, hear, from students that are still going through this process, you know, and, and what it's like for them. It's going to feel very, I think, much closer to them in terms of not only age, but also in terms of a mindset and what they might be expecting, right? Yes, yes, exactly. That sounds great. So, uh, yeah, I encourage everybody to go to that uh, to that page now. And, you know, the other thing I thought was really interesting about the information, if I'm not mistaken, let's see here, uh, is about... What the uh, the applicants are going to be receiving? Oh my goodness! Yeah, <laughs> it's, wow. So yeah. Uh, yeah, explain that. It's wonderful. What a great uh, what a great program this is going to be for for the uh, people successful applicants. Yeah. So what we wanted to ensure is that the students had uh, accessibility to the program. Mm. So. All kinds of people come from all kinds of different backgrounds. And we just wanted to ensure that we can ex- increase that accessibility. Mm. Uh, so we are offering uh, a laptop or a Chromebook for the students to keep for the um, 
you know, they'll receive it at the beginning of the program and they'll get to keep it. They will get an honorarium to be a part of the program and they will also receive a stipend for any uh, internet expenses that will come up for um, while they're in the program. Okay, I think that's worth repeating, folks, because (laughs) this is wonderful. So check this out. So, uh, Rosemary, please say that again. They're going to receive a laptop that they can keep. They get to keep it. Brand new laptop from Best Buy. (laughs) (laughs) Not even used. (laughs) Yeah, not even used. (laughs) Not a second hand. (laughs) So they get a laptop. They they get a stipend for, for attending. And an honorary. Um, plus, they get uh, expenses covered for internet uh, use and, and those kind of things that they might come up against while they're in the program. Yeah. And also, we are providing uh, skip the dish um, coupons so that they can, while they're in the program, they can order their lunch as well. So mm-hmm. every day they're going to get a coupon in their email <laughs> to order lunch. Wow. <laughs> Oh, well, that's great. That's great. Um, Wonderful. This all sounds absolutely wonderful. Um, So once again, folks, uh, what we're we're talking about is uh, if you go to the page indigenousyouthapplication.com, you will find out about this program that we're talking about, which is called Building the Fire, Walking with Medicine in English. And uh, Rosary Spence is my guest, and we're talking about this program. She is the Indigenous Learner Support Program Coordinator in the Office of Indigenous Health for the Temerty Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. (laughs) And so, Rosary, please, if you don't mind, pronounce the name in the traditional language once again of the name of this program. There building you go. the fire, walking with medicine. Yes, a great name. I really like even the translation, but it sounds beautiful when you say it in the, in the language as well. So uh, you can find out more, as I say, by going to the website at indigenousyouthapplication.com. Now, the program runs from August 3rd to the 13th. Uh, it is for students that are interested in getting into the health, uh, health uh, support industry, I'm guessing, is a better way of saying it, what would you say? Uh, yes, health sciences. Yeah, health sciences. And uh, you, there's going. To, how many instructors do you have? Uh, we have ten. Wow. And is, so there's going to be one for each day of the class, each day of the program. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, wonderful. Now, as you said, also, Rosary, this is going to be a very safe environment. And uh, just before it begins, there's going to be a parent and student information session that's going to be taking place virtually. And although this was initially meant to be taking place in class, uh, it is going to now be virtual because of COVID-19 protocols, which are still in place. So that's what they're doing. They're limiting this to the greater Toronto area for applications. So uh, there is still a few places available, as Rosary is saying. So you can go online to find out more about this. And uh, if you go to the website, there is the homepage, there's the information page, the program page, application, and then uh, contact as well. So there's all these available. You can get a lot of information by going down and scrolling through each of those pages. And as we talked about, uh, the program description itself uh, uses the four quadrants of the medicine wheel, and it will describe all of that for you through there. And then if you scroll down to the bottom of that page under the program, you will also see the daily themes uh, that will be uh, talked about. 
And as Rosary just mentioned, there's 10 instructors. That's one for each day. So you get one instructor each day. And uh, as Rosary also mentioned, these uh, some of these instructors are actually going to be uh, students that are still going through health uh, health services and are in programs. So you can ask them questions, I'm guessing. There's going to be a chance to explore what they are finding as they are going through this. Some of the things they hadn't thought of, some of the things that they've explored, some of the things they're finding out that you know you don't you don't necessarily get to hear from uh, when you're when you're when 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 you don't have that uh, inside view from from going through and working through this. So it, it's a wonderful opportunity. Not only that, but Rosary just mentioned as uh, as I saw by going to the website as well. The application, the successful applicants will get a laptop. Not even a used one. I can't believe it's going to be a brand new one, as she said, from Best Buy. You get the laptop. You get a stipend or honorarium for attending. Uh, You get Skip the Dishes coupons so you can get your lunch. Uh, Plus, you get expenses covered for uh, for anything that you use uh, from the Internet. So there's a wonderful opportunity for you to... uh, to explore this, to find out more, to 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 uh, look at this, and remember, uh, Rosary. The other thing that you guys are doing is is you're not. It's not just looking and doing this from a Western pr- perspective. You're you're incorporating traditional knowledge and and things as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, we feel that um, that's vital, especially uh, within our culture. We do believe in that holistic approach of taking care of yourself yeah. as a whole, mm-hmm. uh, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically. Mm-hmm. And um, we, especially like within our culture, when we're working with patients um, who come from communities where you know there's there's lots of different things going on. You know, we want to take care of that person when they come. Uh, especially when they come to us for, for care, right? Mm. We want to be able to take care of them as a whole. Mm-hmm. So this is why we're, we feel it's so important, you know, and why we're, we've developed this program is we just know that there's just, there's a lack of indigenous uh, representation within the healthcare field. And we feel that, you know, reaching out to uh, younger age groups, uh, grade nine and 10 to begin that conversation, mm. you know, this is potential, like you don't know who you could be speaking to. And then this, you know, this young youth in grade nine mm. could follow through and go all the way to university, attend medical school, yeah. and then they could, you know, create a cue for cancer. You know, so right. it's it's about impacting lives from a younger age. And this is why we feel it's so important to make sure that they they have accessibility to attend the program, that it won't deter them from their current um, daily activities that they're doing, that it's just something that to nourish and to fulfill mostly yeah. Yeah. and, um, you know, create curiosity. You know, the other thing is you were talking there about, uh, about uh, incorporating more traditional knowledge. That's the other thing. Are you finding mm-hmm. a change in terms of the approach or the idea that there is value within the traditional knowledge, real value? Uh, you know, I've had a number of conversations and interviews with people that are, let's say, the, the uh, climate, for instance, you know, issues around the climate. And if we look at, at how people are starting to view the climate crisis that we are in and the way they're talking about how we need to uh, live uh, with the planet or start to be more, more green-minded, et cetera, et cetera, it really reminds me that they are, that is a traditional way of thinking. Uh, you know, living light on the land, living with Mother Nature. It's a traditional way that 
seems to be coming back. Uh, and uh, and I, I keep reminding people of that, you know, this is you know, very much like, a, like going back to indigenous knowledge and using those practices that have never been honored or looked at as having value. But I'm getting the mm-hmm. sense maybe that's starting to change. Would you agree? Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, when we look at healthcare, we take we think about all the different ways that we need to take care of our bodies to mm. pre- to prevent disease from developing. Right. Mm-hmm. So one of those ways is you know realizing okay and keeping in mind what what are you putting in your body? Is this something that's going to be beneficial for your mm-hmm. body? Mm-hmm. We're talking about nutrition, you know, and then we t- uh, we go back into all of the different areas of the medicine wheel. Well, physical is one of those important parts of it. You know, taking care, making sure you're healthy, making sure you're going for your regular doctor checkups, you mm. know, and if you do have a, a type of illness, making sure you're on top of that. And it's all about just taking care of yourself right. and connecting with the land around you, finding your balance. And um, we do offer, you know, there's a lot of um, land-based medicines, mm in your area, wherever you Mm. are, there's medicine out there on the land that is available to you. You don't need a prescription for it. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely free. And if you can develop a knowledge and reconnect with earth again, you can find that medicine and you can help yourself. Not to say that, you know, if you break your arm one day, (laughs) if you break your arm, you need to go to the hospital. (laughs) So this is, this is about that partnership, you know, bringing together Western medicine with traditional values and traditional knowledge of medicine, working together so that we can, you know, it's for the betterment of all humanity Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, this is the big picture. Yeah. Now you mentioned physical health, and and you know if I look at that the teachings that you're going to be looking at throughout the the medicine wheel, uh, and the four quadrants. Of course, it starts with spiritual health, uh, and the and infants and children, and then it gets into the emotional health and youth. Physical health is an adulthood, and then of course mental health uh, is what you described in the in the north and the elders. Uh, the other thing I think about is is when I see spiritual. Um, I think I think about how important our minds are in terms of our ability to heal. We we all heard these great stories about how people have come back from you know uh, fourth stage cancer, you know, which is usually not supposed to happen, and yet it, it's usually we hear it's the it's the mind. It's using the, our our brains are so powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I've, I've heard many, many miracle stories as well um, mm. growing up about different um, ceremonies and practices that have helped and cured mm. people that have, you know, been on the brink of death. Yeah. So there is a lot of value in, in practicing spiritual health and, and having that belief in higher power, definitely. So, Rosary, tell me something more about just the, you know, the faculty of medicine at the University of Toronto and, and the area that you work in, just in general. What, what can you tell us about that? Sure. So, as the Indigenous Learner Support Program Coordinator, um, my role basically is to provide that emotional support, the mental mm. health support, spiritual support, and physical for Indigenous medical students within the Faculty of Medicine. Um, I work as basically a community navigator. So if they, mm. they come to me and they need assistance with anything, really, housing, mm. um, if they need anything, mm. like they'll come to me and I'll guide them in the direction in the community um, of, of where they can reach um, anything it is that they might need. I also help connect um, our learners with elders and medicine people uh, for ceremonies, uh, connect them with um, 
teachers and traditional knowledge practitioners if they need guidance in a certain aspect of their life. Mm. Um, so I'm basically, uh, as my title says, I'm learner support and right. that's my role. Right. Um, I also work in partnership with the Women's College Hospital mm. as cultural support there as well. Our main gathering place that we call um, was just opened up in November this past November, we had our official opening, and this is a space um, within the hospital where learners can come and gather, and we can do workshops, we can uh, facilitate ceremonies there, we can have just social gatherings. Uh, we haven't had one yet because of COVID, right. but that space is there, and we're patiently waiting for the time for the green light that we can uh, safely come together right. within that space as well. Right. Okay, thank you for that. I appreciate you you explaining that. You know, I just thought of one other thing that a question might come up, and, and maybe where this is the contact page that might come in handy, because I see when you go to that page, uh, your name, of course, does come up, and your email, so people can connect to you from that. Yeah. And what I was thinking, as you said, you were you were limiting this to the GTA. Now, let's say someone lives in the GTA... But they're going to visit home, right? Mm -hmm. Back to their home reserve or whatever for, and they're going to be there during that time period of when this course mm -hmm. is running, but they're interested. Um, do they have to be within the GTA or is it, is, you know, you know what I'm saying? Because somebody might have that question. Hey, I I'm, I'm live here, but I'm going to be in, you know, some other community, well, you know, for the next three weeks or, or a month while I'm visiting, you know, my relatives and yeah. stuff. So... That's a really good question. Thank you for asking that. So right now we're specifically asking for people who are in the GTA and mm. currently living in the GTA. Mm. Um, reason being is we, there is potential opportunity for some open air land-based activities uh, within the program as well. Okay. So it's not currently on the calendar yep. uh, because, because of COVID restrictions, right? Yeah. But mm. now that things are starting to slowly open up, there is that potential that we could meet a couple of days in person right. in a safe open air environment. Right. Okay, good. I, I think mm -hmm. we've covered pretty much everything. Uh, Rosary, what do you think? I think that's it. Yeah, that's. <laughs> thank you so much for the opportunity to, to talk about our program. This is so exciting. Well, it's a very exciting program. Congratulations and all the best to you. And as you say, this is the first year. So let's hope it, it continues because it looks like this really has the potential to uh, really open up some opportunities for youth that uh, might be interested in doing this. Not only, it's almost, geez, it's almost like a summer job for these kids because uh, they get this they get the laptop, they get paid for going, uh, they get, uh, as you say, an honorarium stipend, and, and also they get their lunches covered and expenses for, for internet. So, uh, listen, uh, you know, uh, if, you're, if you are in grade 9 or 10 by September of this year, correct? Yes. Then you can apply. And if you go to Indigenous Youth application.com online on the web on on uh, the internet you can find more about this uh, for about this course and it's going to give you uh, the opportunity to uh, look it over there's an info page there's a program there's the application which is very important and if you have further questions you can reach out to rosary on her email there as well now uh, rosary i have another question that is not related to this but your last name is spence i used yes. to work with um with someone at aptn in winnipeg uh who who was a spence are you uh, be, happen by to be related at all 
That's a really good question. <laughs> my family is super huge. Oh, yeah. Uh, my grandmother had like 11 sisters mm. that like all married up the coast. Okay. And uh, the Spence clan is huge. So <laughs> potentially I could be related to them. So. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. But again, Rosary, thank you so much for joining me. Rosary is the Indigenous Learner Support Program Coordinator in the Office of Indigenous Health at Temerty Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. We've been talking to her about Building the Fire, Walking with Medicine. It's a program running from August 3rd to the 13th. You can find out more by going to IndigenousYouthApplication.com. And Rosary, I'll just get you once more to pronounce that name in in the beautiful language. Zakan ne bimwidwin kichikanu madwinan. Very nice. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much and Chimigwech for taking the time to join us on the show and, and explain this and share this great information. Chimigwech for having me. You bet. You take care. Take care. Okay. Ona. And that is this part of the show. I'm your host David Moses. Please don't go away because we're going to be right back with more right after this short break. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. You can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. If you download the app, you can listen anywhere you go. So you can take us with you anywhere where you go. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show today. We have with us the Executive Director of Native Child and Family Services in Toronto. And we have Jeffrey Schiffer. Dr. Jeffrey Schiffer is here with us to talk about the centre, about what it's been doing, about what's been going on. In fact, Element FM uh, in community, was there just a little while ago when uh, summer solstice was taking place to help uh, with the grand opening of the new Mount Dennis Aboriginal Centre and Family Service Centre in Toronto. We'll talk to him a little bit about that, but we'll talk also about the centre and uh, how it has grown over a number of years. I understand that it has over 300 employees at this point in time. That's fabulous. And all the work that they do all around the Toronto uh, area, because it, it's amazing the the breadth of uh, and scope that they uh, actually try to uh, to implement and help with Indigenous people throughout the city. So, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Schiffer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, David. Now, you are of uh, Métis and German ancestry yourself. That's correct, yes. Schiffer is a name that comes to me from my father. Uh, it means boat builder. So my dad was born in Germany and actually immigrated to Toronto as a child. Um, the Métis side of my family comes through my mother. My mother's a woman named Shirley Turcotte. So, uh, uh, but I was actually, she was born and raised in, uh, in Winnipeg, in fact. So I've got uh, family scattered across, uh, across Turtle Island, you could say. And the fact that you were raised in uh, unceded Coast Salish territory. <laughs> yes, <laughs> born and raised. My parents actually met in Toronto, and I was born and raised in uh, in Vancouver. So I've been a guest in uh, Treaty 13 <laughs> for about four years now. Really happy to be out here in Toronto. Wow, that's amazing. What a great history. You've uh, you've certainly covered all the bases, I guess you might say. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Great. Uh, that must uh, that kind of a, of an upbringing. The fact that you moved around a little bit. The fact that you've got those those histories. How would you say that impacted your own upbringing? Because uh, of that that wonderful mix of things that you have. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it has directly led me to where I am today. I have, uh, you know, we have family members that were apprehended through the 60s scoop. Mm -hmm. My mother had a very challenging uh, upbringing, lots of, uh, the, you know, the type of abuse and challenges that are common to a lot of uh, Indigenous families during that time. And I had the opportunity to grow up while she was developing uh, an Indigenous program for complex trauma. Uh, I had, and I got to visit reserve communities uh, across Canada and really see um, what the aftermath of Canada's colonial history looked like, right, and the way that it was impacting people in the present. Uh, you know, and that's really what, what Native Child is about. Our agency was uh, was created in 1986 by the Indigenous community in the city of Toronto yeah. because there wasn't an organization at that time uh, that was um, that was directly focused on addressing the aftermath of colonization, residential schooling, and mainstream child welfare, and that was focused on um, providing integrated, multiple culturally grounded services to not only address the challenges that families are facing, but to define concrete pathways for prosperity and wellness for our children moving forward. Mm. And, and to think that from that, from this grassroots uh, organization of people and elders, uh, it grew into what it is today. That's fabulous. It's amazing, you know, and I do have to acknowledge our founder, Ken Richard, who was the only other executive director before me, um, who, who really led that work. And I think, you know, our service model was developed through four days of ceremony. You know, mm. Ken and those elders and those knowledge keepers, they came together, they they fasted, they sweat, they prayed. And um, and what they came up with, with the, at the end of the day was a service model that said, the only way we can address these challenges uh, is if we offer many, many services, right? Um, and they did direct us. Uh, we were a prevention agency, in fact for almost 20 years, just doing uh, youth services and clinical supports. Uh, and then the community directed us to take on the child welfare mandate. And we did that in 2004. Um, and, you know, I think that we have, we have made great progress. Uh, of course, there is a lot of work to still be done in terms of decolonizing child welfare, mm -hmm. but it's through the integration with those other services and the focus on prevention and early intervention that we're able to change that system on a daily basis here in Toronto. You know, when you when you say that you were you know challenged or asked to take on this uh, element of of the child welfare. Uh, First of all, with as many programs that you're trying to run, I, I can well imagine the challenges simply there, just in terms of the the uh, trying to find the dollars in order to be able to bring that kind of quality that you want to bring forward. That that's got to be a challenge in itself. It is, you know, and we we are only able to achieve uh, that diversity in programming through you know very strong partnerships with all three levels of government, mm. right? And and a, and a and a really phenomenal internal fundraising team. Mm. And now with our new launch of the Indigenous Spirit Fund, uh, which is the first charitable fund in in Canada that's Indigenous owned and operated, and that's focused on decolonizing philanthropy to continue to bring in revenue to enable service expansion for Indigenous kids and families. I, I think. That that we are set up for success to continue doing this work. Now, the Spirit Fund, is that something that people can donate to uh, whenever? Like, can they go onto the website and, and, uh, and donate at that point? 100%. So we've recently launched it and uh, it has its own standalone website, though it is uh, a creation of Native Child. Yep. You know, and as, as we, you know, I've been saying, you know, as we continue, I mean, the Indigenous community, we knew there were thousands of kids buried across Canada. Sure. This isn't new for the yep. Indigenous community, though we're confronted with the intergenerational trauma that's triggered with every discovery. Yep. Uh, you know, our, our allies and, you know, uh, you know, settlers and immigrants and non, all non-Indigenous Canadians are now confronted with um, hundreds 
hundreds and hundreds of bodies of kids across the country. And we have not, this is the tip of the iceberg. You know, I think many of us know this. And I think Canadians right now are asking themselves, what can we do to contribute to breaking the cycle and, 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 and changing this and actually implementing reconciliation? And while there's a lot of things that Canadians can do, um, one of them is donating to the Indigenous Spirit Fund, um, which enables us to mobilize the services that, that, you know, create pathways to wellness for those families, right, that are connected to that residential school experience. You know, now that you've brought that up, uh, I can't help but think about what work it will impact with you and uh, and, and your services that you provide as these findings uh, become more and more prevalent, as, as more and more communities start to do their own research in this area. A hundred percent. And I mean, it's and, and, I mean, in many ways, this is the history that we've, we were set up, we were created to address and we have been doing that. But I think that this accelerates the conversation in ways that are uh, important and in ways that um, we want to, um, I guess, take advantage of, for lack of a better word. I think that um, the connection between residential schooling and mainstream child welfare is clear. We know that as quickly as residential schools were closed, provincial systems of child welfare emerged. And though kids weren't forcibly taken and placed in residential schools, they were scooped up and yep. put in non-Indigenous foster homes, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, indigenous organizations emerged to take on that mandate in the 80s and 90s. But, you know, I keep thinking of this elder who once said to me, Jeff, if it takes 10 days to walk into the bush, how many days does it take to walk back out? And I thought, man, there must be some like tricky answer for this that I'm not getting. But I answered 10. It takes 10 days. And he said, yes, of course it does. And it was in response to the, the amount of time it's going to take us to address Canada's legacy of residential right. schooling. We cannot decolonize child welfare overnight. Yep. We have a long journey ahead of us. Yeah. But I think that 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 there are certain innovations that enable us to do this work in in more transformative ways. Bill C-92, the new federal legislation, finally recognizing the jurisdiction of Indigenous governing bodies over their 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 child their children is, is one great way that's going to allow us to transform it. And then also, I think we are finding that our partners in government and and just the popular culture is shifting in ways that will enable us to go further in changing some of the tools. Right? Mm-hmm. We are an Indigenous agency, but we are mandated through a provincial government. We operate in in a structure of compliance mm. um, and is colonial when you yes. think about all of the tools yes. and approaches that we use. Absolutely. So I'm hoping that this recognition of the depth of um, loss that community experienced and the recognition of how our system continues to fail Indigenous children and families will enable us to um, move forward in ways that allow us to change the tools that we're using so we can continue to achieve better outcomes for, for and with community. Yes, uh, thanks for pointing that out about the, the 10 days to walk in and walk out because it does make, of course, direct reference to the amount of time that this has been going on, that Indigenous people have been dealing with this and the intergenerational traumas that have been ha- had on people. And uh, that needs to be made aware, I think, more and more so that so that the general public understands the healing that needs to go on uh, as we as we walk through this or walk our way out of it, like you say. You talk about Native Child and Family Services of Toronto and it being a multi-service urban Indigenous agency. Um, 
culturally based programs, services for children and families. A lot of people, when they think about Native Child, just think about us as a children's aid society. And mm-hmm. I really won't, I really try to emphasize that we were a prevention agency before we took on that mandate, before community directed us to do that. And, you know, we have about 20 different locations across the city of Toronto. The vast majority of the work that we provide is culturally grounded support services, right? Um, the majority of our staff, I think you referenced that we have over 300 staff, right, working mm-hmm. across 20 locations. Uh, we're delivering more than 100 programs and services to about 8,000 unique individuals annually across the city of Toronto, right? And only have about 225 children that are connected to the child welfare system, right? So the vast majority of the work that we are doing is prevention work. Uh, and I think that that's how we change the game, is by increasing these culturally grounded prevention services so that we can address challenges early before they become acute, so that we can that we can mobilize innovative services that keep families together and mitigate risk, Um that's how we're going to reduce the overrepresentation of, of children in the child welfare system and, and, and create a different future for our community. Yeah, and, and hopefully uh, there is more and more awareness uh, brought about because of the the, the findings, unfortunate findings, I, I will add, um, that, that you referenced that we've talked about with, with these uh, unmarked graves and, and those kind of things. The other thing I wanted to mention was that uh, Element FM uh, was over at uh, one of your sites that opened up recently, uh, the Mount Dennis Aboriginal Child and Family Centre in Toronto. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So we have been, um, so our service model directs us to go towards community rather than asking community to go to us. And that's why we have so many different centres distributed across Toronto, right? It's a big city with, mm. you know, seventy to 80,000 Indigenous people spread out in neighbourhoods across right. a very large area. And so we try to develop um, service locations in different neighbourhoods to support, um, you know, different um, clusters of the Indigenous community across Toronto. And what we find is that we can support community best when we have service hubs that offer many different programs and services. And so our latest iteration of that is the two new Aboriginal Child and Family Centres, which we actually finished completing throughout throughout the course of the pandemic. And mm. the largest one is the Mount Dennis Aboriginal Child and Family Centre, uh, the one that we were so happy to have you visit. That centre is a multi-service space. It includes an Aboriginal Head Start program, uh, an Indigenous Early On program. Not only do we have the 10,000 square foot uh, building, but we have a vacant lot next to it where we have a natural uh, play-based playground, a medicine garden, a proper sweat lodge in the ground. You know, we also set up a teepee there sometimes. Inside, we will also have youth programming, clinical services and supports, um, cultural programming. We'll do things like community kitchens and ceremonies. We have a community council that actually helped us develop the space and guided the the, serv- the suite of services that we decided to put in that location. Um, so it's a it's a multi service space that has been developed, co developed with the community, and that offers a space um, for a growing Indigenous community in the city of Toronto to gather, not only to access programs to support them, but but for community building, right? Because in a city like Toronto, you don't often you walk through the city and you don't you don't notice a lot of Indigenous architecture. You don't often see a lot of other Indigenous community members. So this gives community members a place to gather and celebrate and and have the sense of belonging and ownership, which I think is um, so needed. It sounds like a wonderful facility and certainly, wow, all the services that you're providing through that there, uh, these two new areas. Whereabouts are they specifically located uh, geographically in the city? 
Sure, yeah. So the Mount Dennis one is on Weston Road, 1290 Weston Road. It's just north of Eglinton on Weston Road, so in, in the Mount Dennis neighborhood. Uh, the second one is in actually in Malvern Town Center uh, in mm-hmm. uh, Scarborough, so like in North yeah. Scarborough, where there's also a large Indigenous community. And that one is actually right in a in a mall in Malvern mm-hmm. Town Center, so right. clustered with a lot of other services that can support community as well. Were they pre-existing um, sort of centers that have been expanded on, or, or are these brand new uh, centers? These are brand new, so they did not exist before. So um, the the one in Malvern is actually like a is just leased a leased space in mm. the mall where there was a, I guess there must have been a previous business there before, but mm. we did significant renovations with community. And the Mount Dennis is a new building that we purchased uh, and renovated. So yep, they are, they are brand new, and we've been kind of getting the word out through social media as best we can. But this is another phenomenal opportunity for us to make community uh, aware of these new centers. So so we I do appreciate you highlighting them. Yeah, nice. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And this is Moment of Truth on Element FM. And it is a pleasure to have Dr. Jeffrey Schiffer on the show today. He is the Executive Director of the Native Child and Family Services of Toronto. We'll be talking to him about the services, not only they provide, but the service centres around the City of Toronto. I believe, uh, Dr. Schiffer, you said, are there 30 of them roughly? We've got about 20 different locations. Okay. Yeah. When you think about all of our transition houses, early on centers, mm-hmm. daycares, Aboriginal Head Starts, youth centers, yep. clinical supports, and our child and family well-being as well. Yeah. Now, um, approximately how many people might make use of, and it sounds like these, these centers vary in size as well and the services that they provide. They do. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So what might be a small center? What might in, be included in a small center? One might, might be, uh, you know, with a large center. What might, how might they differ? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we have, we have some locations which are just like uh, an Aboriginal Head Start program. Yep. And, that may, and we have some centers that are, you know, native learning centers and TDSB schools. We own a number of houses that are transitional homes to support youth. Um, and, and so those would just be like a house, for example. Right. right? right. And then we have these kind of four larger kind of multi-service sites. Uh, the two uh, Aboriginal Child and Family Centers we just talked about. We also have our Native Youth Resource Center on Bloor, which is a multi-service site dedicated to youth, uh, where we have things like our seventh generation image makers and uh, youth housing workers and youth justice workers and employment and education programs for youth and a variety of other supports. Uh, and then we have our main facility at 30 College downtown, um, which is where we have an early on center. Uh, we also have our child and family well-being programs and a lot of the administrative, you know, back office side of the agency uh, is also placed there. So uh, I think centers, some of our facilities are quite small and may only have a handful of staff. Uh, our largest site at 30 College has over 100. So you can see that there's quite a variance in size. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like quite a busy place for sure as well. Would you say that you you're servicing areas provide enough space for the need that is out there or do you feel that you are always running to catch up i think that uh I think that, that, that we are, we have been running to catch up, but we've been growing a lot over the next, over the last three years. I think what really worries me is that, um, you know, we're on the heels of this global pandemic. Yeah. Uh, we were locked down for a long, long time and families were self-isolating for a very long time. And we know that, um, 
there are increased challenges related to mental health and wellness and family and cultural connectedness that directly stem uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, our Mino Bamazdo and Healing and Prevention Center, which houses most of our clinical programs and our anti-human trafficking programs and a lot of our violence against women programs and other supports, never traditionally had a waiting list. It's been operating since the mid-90s and it mm. never had a waiting list. Mm. Um, you know, the pandemic hits and all of a sudden well, we have over 25 families on that waiting list, right? Okay. So we are seeing an increased demand for mental health supports and other services that directly stem um, uh, from COVID-19. And so we're hoping to continue to work with government and also to raise money through the Indigenous Spirit Fund and other means to meet that increasing demand. Now, you've mentioned the pandemic, and of course, everyone was dealing with that and the lockdown, of course, that impacted everyone. How did this affect your uh, services? So we, so as an essential service provider, a lot of our services continued. We continue, we continued to operate our daycare, you know, our child and family well-being continued uh, to be delivered. But we saw a lot of our face-to-face services evaporate, quite frankly, mm. um, and that created huge challenges for the community. Uh, we pivoted in in, in very um, interesting ways. I think. I mean, I reflect a lot on uh, what I have learned through elders and knowledge keepers about leaning into land for wellness. Mm. I had an opportunity a few years back to co-found the the, uh, culturally relevant urban wellness program at the UBC Farm, uh, which is Mm. a program that brings Indigenous youth and care to the UBC Farm to uh, learn how to connect to land for wellness. And, you know, just months into the pandemic, I thought to myself, man, we have got to get kids and families outside safely Mm. to be able to manage the challenge. And so we pivoted all of our early on centers, actually, to be the only early on provider in Ontario that was delivering trauma-informed land-based practice in City of Toronto parks uh, throughout the duration of the pandemic. We partnered with SickKids Hospital and the University of Toronto to do a rapid evaluation of that work. And what we found was that over 90% of the families who were participating in that work saw improvements in their mental health, um, reductions in anxiety and depression, improvements of feeling of, of, of family connectedness. So I think we really learned that um, we had to innovate in ways that um, respected, you know, the public health guidelines, but but delivered essential services to Indigenous children and families who were being disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. Mm. Yeah, I was just out at UBC. I saw a little bit of the, the farm out there when I was helping my son set up, go to university. So, um, sure. uh, But mentioning that and mentioning how you came back and implemented that, you know, to help with, with what you were dealing with here... Uh, does this now give you new insight into say, hey, this is something we can now implement moving forward on a, maybe a regular basis? Exactly. I mean, this is one of those silver linings from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. This is one of those service innovations that was created uh, within a crisis that we know will continue long after the pandemic. Uh, the city of Toronto now has an Indigenous placemaking strategy. Uh, they have a new ravine strategy. Uh, our agency right now is developing outdoor early on um, curriculum, which will go to all 60 plus early on providers across the city of Toronto. This is also an example where we can see very clearly that Indigenous tools and approaches is don't just benefit Indigenous people, but they are in fact good for our entire human family, right? A lot of the families that we work with are mixed families where one parent may be Indigenous and another is non-Indigenous or maybe some siblings from a previous marriage are are, are not Indigenous. In that that rapid evaluation that we did, it didn't matter if you were Indigenous or not, everybody benefits from interaction with green space, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so as we think about the looming mental health crisis that we're all facing as a community on the heels of this pandemic, we need to think about ways 
ways to get children and kids and families outside in ways that directly address those challenges. And that's exactly the kind of programming that we're working on right now at Native Child. Now, you, not only for the people that were participating and benefiting from this, as you saw the results, but the people you partnered with, um, would you say that they have now seen the light sort of and, and are, 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 were perhaps pleasantly surprised to see the results in, in what you were doing and, uh, and that they see the benefit of, of this as well? 100%. Our, our, our partners at SickKids were phenomenal. And, um, you know, we, we produced a call to action together, in fact, towards the end of the second uh, wave of COVID, uh, a collective call to action for government to release some of the restrictions around outdoor play, uh, particularly focused on what the research and what Indigenous knowledge says about the importance of getting kids outside in the face of mental health crisis. Mm, wonderful. Wow, the, the breadth of uh, and scope of, of the work that you guys are doing there is quite something. Uh, and you must have quite the staff. Yes. So I, I do have to, I mean, you know, the honor of one is the honor of all, right? Mm. It's another great uh, mm-hmm. uh, saying of a Coast Salish elder that I had the privilege of learning from. And, and, and what we are able to accomplish at Native Child is, um, you know, only only possible through the collective strength of our circle. Uh, staff working at every level make this work possible on a daily basis. And, um, you know, it, it's it's I was so humbled and, and, and proud of all of our staff for the consistent work that they provided throughout the context of the pandemic, um, working tirelessly to ensure that community members were supported in, in such a challenging time. And, um, you know, over 300 staff working across the city um, to engage in this transformative work of decolonization together with community um, is just such an amazing thing to witness. And I'm so grateful for an opportunity to steward mm-hmm. our agency while, while I'm here. All right. Now, as things start to open up, you mentioned about the the uh, waiting list that you have in certain areas uh, of, of some of the, the services you provide, the mental health. Anything you can share with us about uh, the future as, as you think about this and move forward? Sure. Yeah. I mean, all of our services continued virtually, right? And so now we are in the process of um, some services will remain virtual because community like that, but we're in the process of starting up, you know, more face-to-face service. I should say, and I, I have said that uh, we did continue face-to-face service throughout the entire pandemic. But when you look at all of our portfolios, certain areas were significantly reduced based on public health orders. Um, as the province begins to open up, we are very excited to welcome community back into our locations. We have a big focus right now on our summer camps. Mm. Uh, you know, we have our, our camp at, 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 uh, at Grundy Lake Provincial Park. We offer day camps across the city. Um, so we're right now focused on welcoming families back into our summer camp programs um, and, and are sort of holding our breath, so to speak, around when we will be able to open our early on centers and our multi-service sites to begin welcoming community in. So mm. I think that we are very near uh, to being able to increase our capacity for face-to-face service. And mm. it'll, it'll just be so phenomenal to get back together with community, not only for all the services we provide, but for all the community activities that we do, right? right. We're looking for, we want to be able to do our powwow in September. We yeah. want to go back to community kitchens and ceremonies. And um, and so just um, really excited on all fronts to, to resume that work. Yeah, I bet. Uh, Grundy Provincial Park, is that north? Is that like 
Northern Ontario area? Yeah, it's close to Sudbury. It's yeah. a bit of a drive from Toronto, but, you know, we have some dedicated space there. Um, and we have to be thank- – and we're very thankful to our, our partners right. of the province there who have enabled us to use that land for, you know, gosh, almost 30 years plus. Right. Um, you know, there are yeah, – it's, it's become a fundamental part of so many families uh, across the city of Toronto, many of whom grew up attending Grundy Lake Camp and yeah. are now um, employed as counselors, you know, supporting new generations of youth to move through that process mm-hmm. uh, we do eight weeks of um of camps focused on different age levels and families and um yeah so we i'm very excited to getting that up and running this year it was virtual last summer and oh, yeah. then this year uh, it will be in person which is so exciting to us it is and uh, you know again you just brought up another <laughs> another thing there to consider and that's transportation you got to obviously transport these people Exactly. Right. And so how many people can you have in each van and what does the spacing look like? And so the other thing that we've been doing is, is uh, supporting the indigenous vaccination effort across the city of Toronto. Mm -hmm. So while these two new hubs were closed for a lot of the services we like to provide, we turned them into pop-up vaccination clinics, working together with Anishinaabe Health Toronto and the city of Toronto. And one of the things we're focusing on right now is youth vaccinations, trying to get our Mm -hmm. young folks uh, 12 and up vaccinated and really supporting, um, sharing good information about vaccines and trying to combat uh, vaccine hesitancy as, as much as we can, because we know that uh, the more community members that are vaccinated, the better when it comes to, you know, traveling together in vans and, uh, you know, being close together in indoor spaces. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Uh, some really fabulous stuff that you guys are doing and, and the work that you have been doing throughout the pandemic. So congratulations to you and all the staff there at Native Child and Family Services of Toronto. Jeff, it's been fascinating speaking with you, and I, I certainly hope that you'll keep us in mind if there's uh, something new that, that happens. Uh, we're, we'd be happy to have you come back on the show to talk about that and share the good uh, news that, and, and the good work that you're doing about, about stuff that is happening in the city, in and around the city. My pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to spend some time with you today. Chimigwech. Yeah, Chimigwech for joining us on the show. Executive Director Dr. Jeff Schiffer for the Native Child and Family Services of Toronto. Been talking to him about the wonderful work and wonderful uh, services they provide, even though it is in these challenging times of the pandemic, but things are starting to change. And don't forget, you can go to the Native Child and Family Services of Toronto website to make a donation to their Spirit Fund. And that is our show for today. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth. And we will see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.